from the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. My guest for today's show is Hendrik Hammond, Senior Manager and Distinguished Researcher in the Physical Sciences Department at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center. An IBM Master Inventor, Hendrik holds approximately 100 patents and is currently helping to lead IBM's worldwide activities in Internet of Things research. He was on campus to deliver a lecture titled, Big Data Gets Physical, as part of our Mendoza College of Business's 10 Years Hence Speaker Series, which explores issues, ideas, and trends likely to affect business and society over the next decade. Starting with a primer on some common terminology, Hendrik talked to me about the technology rapidly transforming our day-to-day lives, the processes by which it is created and managed, and the role of universities in all of this, all during a breakfast rush that made the restaurant we were in unusually noisy. But you can hardly blame our fellow diners. Oatmeal creme brulee is pretty exciting. Hope you enjoy. Hendrik Hammond, welcome to the show. Oh, hey. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for being Ex- here. Yeah, excited uh, to be here. So I thought maybe we could start out with you do work in areas that I think a lot of us, we hear the terms and we nod our head in understanding without really knowing what we're nodding our heads about. So there's a couple of things I wonder if you were to give kind of a layman's definition of, of what they are, uh, a couple of those terms. So the first one I would say is big data. What, what is big data? Ah, that's a very good question. So there are some official definitions what a big data is, but um, to be uh, not too technical, right. for me, big data is if the data is just too big to be moved to another place. Okay. Meaning the data size is so large that, for example, downloading it or transmitting it, it just takes too long to process all that data. And that is big data for me. And so that would be something with millions of data points, billions of data points? Big- yeah, so typically you... Um, so to give you a very concrete example, yeah. um, we all have backup um, um, backup our, our hard disk drives, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, our backup. And how long does it take you? It takes you five hours, maybe, six mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. So that's already pretty big data, right? Just to back up your data mm-hmm. from your laptop, six hours, seven hours. So you're talking terabytes. And tera is um, is uh, 10 to the 12 bytes. So pretty big. Okay. Pretty big. Okay. And then you're dealing with things... Even bigger. That... Yeah. We, we deal with uh, petabytes. Okay. Yeah, and hundreds of petabytes of data. So that's quite, quite big, right? Um, the total amount of data being generated um, every day is, of course, on the order of many, many uh, thousands of exabytes. So that's 10 to the 18 bytes. It's, it's, it's crazy. And that's worldwide every day? 
Yeah, and it's growing. It's growing exponentially. In fact, if you look into uh, the numbers of data points we generate now every year, that is almost as much as we have generated, right? Going from the 80s back all the way in history. Right. So, crazy. Right. It's, it's a crazy amount of information, right? Mm. How about Internet of Things? What, it, what is the Internet of Things? Oh, Internet of Things is an extension of the Internet of Computers okay. to real things like light bulbs, refrigerators, everything which is out there. And that is very significant because, you know, we connect computers, we uh, connect the people through social networks, and now we are connecting the physical world, mm -hmm. right? And uh, that has huge impl um, implications, really, for, for everyday life, for how we're going to operate, how the, the efficiencies we can get from our from transportation, from manufacturing, etc. The third one that I saw, and I think I read that this was coined at IBM, and I know it's central to your work, is physical analytics. Ah. And, and so I imagine it's related to the first two things we talked about there in terms of is it integrated with Internet of Things, big data, physical analytics is an outgrowth of that? Yeah. or Yeah, it is an outgrowth of that, right? So fundamentally, of course, you have to analyze all that data, right? So that brings you into what people generally refer as analytics or big data analytics. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been a lot of work in analyzing social networks, social analytics. There has been a lot of work in analyzing business, transactional data, business analytics. And so, as analogy, really now, since we're talking about physical systems, we're talking about physical analytics. And in its core, it's really bringing together Internet of Things, classical big data analytics, and then uh, physical modeling and engineering. It's really at the intersection of these different disciplines. It's kind of an exciting area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... What are some of, I mean, if you were given an example, two of projects that you're working on right now with all these things, what, what are some of those? For example, an interesting area is, is energy, right? Mm -hmm. So in energy, of course, we have now much more renewable energy sources, right? We have intermittent energy sources from solar, wind, and um, developing technologies uh, based on the Internet of Things, based on physical analytics, based on big data, to integrate these intermittent energy sources much more efficiently into the power grid. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of things we're working on, right? It's one of the big projects. Um, so energy integration, right? Because one, one of the things people don't really appreciate in, in, in renewable energy is, um, of course, you cannot really store energy. So... Let's say there's no wind, there is no sunshine, and you need energy. Yeah, feel, feel free, yeah. All right, uh, I take a coffee. Yeah. Can I get uh, orange juice? Yeah. I had a latte before I came in, so <laughs> I don't need any more coffee right away. All right. So, but no, you were talking about one of the things that people don't understand with renewable energy is that it's intermittent, so there's times when your, your energy source it's not there. isn't there. And for that, you really need... Um, and if you don't know that, you need to have other sources, right, which mm -hmm. can jump in. 
So if you have no predictability, if you cannot forecast, if you don't have good models, if you don't have a good understanding of how much energy is being generated, how much energy will be generated, how much energy is being uh, required, etc. If you don't have these types of insights, then you run into the problem that you can't really fully take advantage of these renewable energy sources. And so that's really one of the things we're working on, right? Yeah, I mean, so it seems like that really is a kind of a key pressure point in terms of we've clearly demonstrated or we know we have the ability to capture renewable energy, but in terms of being able to scale it to a point where it can actually make a significant difference in terms of how the grid is powered. That's exactly right. You know, what I was um, discussing, the intermittency is no big deal if you only have 2% of your total energy mix intermittent. Right. Right? Then you can you, you can deal with that. Mm-hmm. But if you have now suddenly 10, 15, 20% of energy coming from unpredictable, non-dispatchable uh, sources, then you obviously need to have much more intelligence in the system built in to take full advantage of it. Right. You won an award um, from the American Institute of Physics a couple years ago for industrial applications of physics. And one of the things they talked about in the, the award committee in giving you that award talked about the applications of your work to 21st century challenges. And we just talked about one now with working on energy. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, that process that starts in the lab and then goes all the way through to something that becomes a product or technology, that commercialization process. So that is a, it's a, it's a very interesting question. It's, of course, a very difficult one to answer. But early in my career, maybe I can give you an example. Yeah. So when I really started uh, out in IBM, actually, um, that was over 20 years um, I was working on improving the density of storage devices, right? So how much information, if we talked already about all the information we can today store, how can you store even more information on less space? Mm-hmm. Right, so that's called, um, today for example, we can store uh, maybe one terabit per square inch of information, which is quite, quite a lot, it's quite, quite tremendous. And you run into some really fundamental challenges if you want to push the storage density further and further. And some of these challenges have to do with really fundamental physics. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if you make the, um, the information is being stored in magnetic bits typically, right? Um, at least for, for, for magnetic storage. And if you make these magnetic bits smaller and smaller, different sets of physics take over. And a lot of that is not fully understood, right? And so that's really where you can use fundamental research understanding these phenomena and then once you understand it, trying to come up with engineering solutions to circumvent that mm-hmm. or to engineer it such that you can actually push these densities further, right? So in that particular case, for example, we discovered that when you make these magnetic bits smaller and smaller, you would have to use um, what they call harder and harder magnetic materials. But the problem was you couldn't write on these hard magnetic materials because you didn't have magnets as strong. So we were in this dilemma that if we wanted to make these bits smaller, 
we had to use harder magnetic materials, but then we couldn't write on them because we didn't have magnets, uh, which we could put into, uh, into, into these recording heads, as they call them. So the solution we came up with was really um, trying to come up with ways to really intermittently heat the magnetic bit mm-hmm. for, very sh- for a very, very short amount of time. So we could lower its magnetization so that even a weaker magnet could write on this very hard magnetic material. And um, that's eventually what we did to, to, to push these densities up. But a lot of fundamental physics, because then you start looking into, okay, how do I heat uh, something which is maybe only um, 10 nanometers? And the nanometers tend to the minus 9 meters, right? Mm-hmm. So very, very small. How can I heat mm-hmm. something as small? Mm-hmm. How can I get enough heat? And how can I do this fast enough? Uh, because you want to f- write very, very fast right. information. All these, all these, all these fundamental questions. Now, from an, um, from an, from a process point, I think the, the the important thing is once you have made some of these fundamental discoveries and you see an application, it's always good to seek immediately some type of application. So to create a prototype. Mm-hmm. to really build something which really does solve a problem. So there you have your fundamental discovery. And so can I build a prototype which does demonstrate an actual practical um, application of what I'm doing? And the sooner you are in that process, going back and forth, the more success you have to actually bring out your technology to your life. Mm-hmm. I, re- I mean... I don't know if this is the exact same kind of example, but I just I still have a a flash drive hanging around in my office that it doesn't. I think it's probably twelve years old. And when I looked at it one day, I think it had one twenty eight k was the amount of storage <laughs> that it had on it. And now then I have another one that's smaller with eight megabytes on it, and that one's old now. So I'm sure there's probably, but it's the same kind of i that idea of that's right. How much you drive up. The, the density. Right. And if you think about you. the enormous advances we've made, it's it's incredible. Right. Right. Uh, the growth in storage density, the growth in how many transistors we can have on a chip, on a microprocessor, uh, has been growing tremendously. Roughly two x every every eighteen fifteen months. So we double every and and you know right your your. Um, so it's non-linear, right? So it's exponential. Right. So we double, right, every 18 months. And you think about the uh, amount of innovation which goes into, this pro- in the, into these products is, is quite amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, right, today we can make um, a microprocessor with 20 billion transistors. 20 billion transistors. Billion with a B, right? With a B, <laughs> with right? A B. Yeah. Not a single transistor is not working, and we do this for ah, a few dollars per piece. If you think about it, it's amazing. Yeah, it's the ultimate uh, engineering um, <laughs> accomplishment you can imagine. It's it's right. bigger than flying to the moon, if you ask me. Right. <laughs> All right. I I don't know. It's a good segue into the next thing I was going to ask you. I don't know if you're familiar with the HBO show Silicon Valley at all if you've ever yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> smart refrigerators have recently played kind of a prominent role on that show both in the idea of 
when you have bad actors who could figure out how to hack into them, as well as, in this case, a fictitious company really having no awareness of how much data their machines are collecting and uploading to the cloud and them being surprised at, wow, we, we didn't know they were doing that. We didn't know that they were capturing all this audio and video of people walking around in front of them or whatever. And so I'm wondering that as the Internet of Things grows and as our capability to do all these things grows at an exponential rate, how does that concerns about privacy or whatever else, how does that influence what you and your colleagues at IBM do in terms of thinking about we're making all this tremendous progress, how do we have some measure of control, I guess, over that tremendous progress? Yeah, that's a good question, right? Um, how, you know, how are we dealing with privacy, right? Um, given that we have now so much information. Um, I think it's going to be an evolving discussion. Um, I think it also will depend very much on what we're talking about, right? What is the application? Of course, health data is much more sensitive than or they have, it's personal data, right? It is um, versus, um, you know, data, how, what, what the traffic is right. going from here to Chicago, right? Right. I think um, we'll have different stages. I think it's going to be a, a, a big discussion. But I do think... Um, there will be a healthy compromise probably between our, um, you know, our wishes to, to have some privacy and then all the efficiency improvements you can get from, from using all that data. Right. And where that's going to fall exactly, I'm not sure. It's going to be a discussion, of course, we, we all have, right? Mm. Is that a... I was just actually... I was listening to a episode of NPR's Fresh Air about this yesterday with artificial intelligence and talking about is while some of these advances are still the idea of say creating a robot that could really interact with you truly in the way that a human could is still a ways off in the future the idea of do we need to be having these discussions now about how we're going to control the machine so they don't control us is that has it risen to that level where that's a discussion now so we don't get to a point where it's, wow, we've created something and we didn't know that it could work this way and it does work this way. Now, how do we back away from that? Yeah, I think the best example, probably the most realistic example is, right, which is, which is real even today, is when, you, um, when you teach machines, right, with lots of historical data to do, you know, whatever, some customer service, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it turns out, of course, the data you feed into that machine to do all that training, if there are biases in that data, that will be reflected in what that machine does. Mm-hmm. Right? So now suddenly we have uh, biases in, 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 in these algorithms, which we discover through these algorithms, which are in fact part of, uh, of the data which we use to train these machines. Mm-hmm. And that's a real, real problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, there are, there are real examples where um, um, machine learning algorithms have been used to, you know, figure out if someone, you know, has, you know, if someone would lie or not lie, etc., etc., right, to a scorecard. And it turns out some of these algorithms are indeed flawed just because mm-hmm. they were trained with wrong data. So I think it's a very important discussion to uh, examine this very, very carefully, right? What are we doing there? And um, are, we teach- are, we, are we creating machines which we really want, right? Right. Mm-hmm. 
and I, maybe this is related to, related to that. Obviously, you're at IBM, but I'm you know, I'd be remiss. We're on a university campus if I didn't ask what role do you think universities have to play in the development of this technology, whether it's in terms of the research that actually moves the technology forward or more like the conversations we were just talking about now in terms of what's the best way to use this technology? Well, I think on both ends, right? On both ends, universities have a very important role to play, right? I mean, on the technology side, obviously, trying to understand some of the fundamental sciences, right? For example, if you look into um, AI and all this machine learning, right? Um, at the end, in many, many cases, we feed some data in, we train a neural network, which means we train certain weights, and then that black box, so to speak, is doing something for you for the future, right? Mm -hmm. And you hope to capture the information from that data in that black box. Now, if I really want to understand, really understanding what, what, how this black box works, right? And what do these different, when we have these neural networks, what these different weights would mean? Uh, there's lots of, lots of opportunities for fundamental research, right? Which will be done, of course, by both universities and industry. But I think industries could, could play, um, I think academia could play a, um, um, a big role in them. Right. And then, of course, on the whole discussion of how to use the technologies, um, I think universities have a very important role to play just because they have a different angle, right? They're not responsible, um, not as, they're not responsible to their shareholders as much as we are, right? right? They have a different role to play. They might be more independent, right, to, to, to look at some of these issues. Mm -hmm. When you received that prize from um, the American Institute of Physics, one of the things they talked about or that they recognized was the interdisciplinary nature of your work. Mm -hmm. And you had this great quote in the press release where you talked about being open to suggestions from anywhere because only the scientific merit matters. So if it's meritorious on a scientific level, I don't care where it came from. That's that's what matters in terms of the work you're doing. And I think on the as an outsider looking at that, that might seem like common sense, but I'm wondering when you're actually working in these fields, are there a lot are there roadblocks to the different disciplines being able to get together and actually inform each other and make these collective advances? Yeah, there are definitely um, roadblocks, right? Which um, has to do that, right? People in different disciplines, they speak different languages. They are used to solve problems very differently. Um, they approach, they have different viewpoints. And they like to isolate um, right, themselves right, from each other, right? It's so much easier to, to talk to people which seem to be mindless like-minded than, um, um, than, than, than perhaps the other way around. In, in any event, I think only if you understand the opportunity, right, to bring different disciplines together, right, mm -hmm. um, then, of course, um, then there is a good chance that people can work from different disciplines very effectively together, right? So you have to look really at the upside of um, bringing different disciplines in, being open-minded, Right, um, but I think honestly, as a as a scientist, 
I think that's the first thing we all, whether, you know, whatever discipline we're in, right? As scientists, the one paramount is that we are open-minded to other scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something also we all should, should try to practice much more. Being open-minded, have no preconceptions. Just because someone comes from the humanities does not mean, right? There's no point, right? <laughs> right. can't solve a partial differential equation, right? <laughs> What good are you then? <laughs> that's right. So I think that's super important, right? I've, I, mean, I always try to, to um, be with no bias initially when I mm-hmm. meet other scientists or meet other people mm-hmm. and uh, be open-minded because, I, because we can only learn, right? What, and I think what we were talking about too with uh, probably even more so than in the past when you talk about the humanities in particular with all these big technologies and the you're talking about ethical implications or privacy concerns or whatever there's even more of a I would think there would be even more of a space for scholars from the humanities to really take part with people working in the hard science sciences to say okay you have the, the technical know-how to do things like put all these 20 billion points in a microprocessor we can talk about what does that mean in a broader sense for how we interact with each other? What's it going to mean for our privacy? So I would think that there would be even more opportunity for collaboration than there was. That's what definitely things are heading to, right? As as all these things become more interconnected, we cannot just afford, right, um, looking at one aspect of a technology, right? Everything is, is interconnected. How we use the technology, if we want to be successful, I think it's widely recognized. And, of course, uh, practicing is probably the bigger challenge there. Mm-hmm. So my last question, and I'm going to get us out of here on this because if anyone doubted that we really went to brunch, I think this is the loudest I've ever heard this restaurant on Notre Dame's campus right now. So we will get to eating our brunch as everyone else around us is. Um, I'm wondering, kind of a two-stage question, 10 years from now and then maybe 20 to 25 years from now, is there anything that you could point to from all this work that's being done, Internet of Things, big data, that in our day-to-day lives, just as an average person, 10 years from now, what might be different? What might be the most significant difference we would know about how we go about our day-to-day versus what we do today? Huh. (laughs) And if you need to, or if you want to project a little farther than that, that's a little bit... Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean... Clearly, right? Things are going to be vastly different in 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. All our transportation is going to be very, very different. Are we all going to be in driverless cars 20 years from now, do you think? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think there's going to be um, a completely diff- new way of, of the way we do transportation. Uh, we will share rides. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will use driverless cars mm-hmm. to do the sharing. Um, I think um, yeah, there will be huge changes uh, in, in transportation for sure from where we are today with roads. There will be not a single I do believe there will be not a single gas station anymore. There will be no car repair shops anymore because they're all going to be electric vehicles which does no maintenance. Right. It's going to be a huge change uh, in, 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 in transportation. I think also in, in, in many other areas, right? Um, everything we do is going to be much more efficient. Uh, we're going to be using even more technology. Things are going to be even more interconnected, right? 
uh, going to be more seamless from 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 doing one thing. Healthcare going to be very very different, I do believe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, from from what we're seeing today, right? Um, I think the way we grow our food will be vastly different. Are going to be even more automatic and much smarter, um, probably with, with much better outcomes. Um, so I think uh, there will be enormous. I think on the society, for the society as large, of course, we're also going to have large implications, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to be even more of a service. Um, 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 service-focused um, uh, focused industry. We'll have a more service-focused industry in the future. Um, I, 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 I am somewhat concerned that um, education will be even more critical, which is a good thing on one hand. On the other hand, it could also be a problem if you don't yep. get the education thing right. right. Um, Making sure enough people have access to it because if it becomes even more absolutely. important to make a living. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's already obvious, but I think in 20 years yeah. it, will be, um, it will be paramount to have a much better education system mm -hmm. and also to use much more technology in education. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so these are all these things which, of course, are going to happen in 20 years. Right? Uh, we might have quantum computers right? in 20 years. And what, what is a quantum computer? What is a quantum computer? <laughs> that is really a, a way to do computation completely different from what we do today. Okay. And uh, quantum, as you know, right, quantum uses the principle of quantum physics. A quantum physics is very non-intuitive to our everyday life. Because in quantum, you can have two states, two things, at the same time in the same place, mm -hmm. which is something inherently not intuitive to us. Right. But why is that interesting? You know, it might be very interesting for um, solving very complex problems. Because you think about it, maybe the simplest example I can give you is, you know, you have a, a mouse in a, in a maze, mm -hmm. right? And you want to find, or you want to get out of a, a, a maze. You're going to go one way, Say okay, that wasn't a good way. You go back, try another way. Mm -hmm. That's what a classical computer would do. It would exhaust all the options. Right. And of course, a classical computer would do this very, very quick. Remember what I just told you: a quantum computer can do all these things at the same time. So you could do it like this. Yeah. So there is, um, it's still an ongoing field, and it's, it's very early, I think, in quantum computing. But, uh, and, um, but there is a certain class of problems which could be very important for us, uh, which could be solved by quantum computers in medicine, in, in other optimization problems, which could have huge implementations, which we cannot solve today. It's fascinating. Andrew Common. Thank, Thank you. you very much. We're, we're going to eat now, so... All yeah. right. Hey, it's Ted. Just a quick note before we go. If you're interested in the principles of quantum physics Hendrik alluded to here at the end, you might want to check out our third episode on probability, multiverses, and Yogi Berra, featuring Oxford's Harvey Brown. And if you want to learn more about the grid and renewable energy, episode two with Stanford's Sally Benson, titled On Climate and Common Sense, may be right up your alley. As always... Thanks for listening. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more, visit provost.nd.edu slash
podcast.